Welcome to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. In this season of the Dutch Podcast, you'll hear from some of the brightest minds in integrative healthcare as we share new perspectives on hormones and challenge a few common misconceptions you might have heard in some circles. We'll bring you cutting-edge education ranging from beginner level to advanced, along with the validated research to back it up. Be prepared to think differently and deepen your understanding of how functional hormone testing can profoundly change the lives of patients. On today's episode of the Dutch Podcast, I get the chance to talk with Dr. Crystal Richardson. Now, Dr. Richardson's a primary care doctor in Seattle. She's a naturopathic physician, and she sees so much women's health that she's really become an expert on polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. This is a condition that has changed over time with how it's diagnosed and what we tend to see in patients. In fact, the diagnostic criteria just changed within the last couple of weeks. There's a large subset of what I might consider non-classical symptoms or comorbidities that are also associated with it. So you really have to be very careful to not get too dialed into that kind of classic uh, subset of, of diagnostic criteria or what we might consider a classic phenotype or, or picture of what PCOS might look like in one individual. So today we're gonna to talk a little bit about how it's diagnosed, what we tend to see, and most importantly, talk about how we see this from an integrative medicine perspective or a naturopathic medicine perspective and what you can do about it if you're working with PCOS. Let's go ahead and get started. Dr. Crystal Richardson is a licensed naturopathic physician and a primary care physician in Washington State. She's the owner of NFM Health Incorporated, which has two clinic locations in Seattle. Dr. Richardson received her doctorate from Bastyr University and completed a residency in family medicine with a focus in pediatrics under her mentor and one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Tamara Cullen Evans. She earned her bachelor's degree in plant biology and graduated from Michigan State University with honors. Dr. Richardson enjoys working with patients of all ages, and she especially loves working with families. Dr. Richardson is passionate about understanding the root cause of illness and educating her patients to help them make the most informed and least invasive health decisions for themselves and their family. The relationships she cultivates with her patients are so important to her and really are essential to helping her understand each of her patients as individuals. Now, isn't that a strength? of naturopathic medicine. Uh, welcome, Dr. Richardson. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, I mean, you work in a family practice environment, right? But um, just like all of us, I'm sure in that environment, you are loaded up with women. And for you, I know you do a lot of pediatrics. But today, I'm excited to talk with you about PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, because this is something that affects so many women of reproductive age. Um, so I'm sure it's something that you see quite a bit in your practice. It is, yes. It, it is a, 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 a growing concern, I, I feel, among a, a lot of women. Definitely. So can you start by sharing a little bit about what you typically see in your female patients that cause you to consider PCOS as a diagnosis? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to approach it in kind of two different directions. One is a subset of classical symptoms or the symptoms that we use uh, that are more of like the diagnostic criteria, which are anovulatory cycles, so not ovulating uh, with a menstrual cycle, uh, hyperandrogenism, which is increased androgens like testosterone in the, in the system, in the blood, uh, or polycystic ovaries. 
though those are the the diagnostic criteria and you only have to have two out of three to meet the the diagnosis there's a large subset of what i might consider non-classical symptoms or comorbidities that are also associated with it so you really have to be very careful to not get too dialed into that kind of classic uh, subset of, of diagnostic criteria or what we might consider a classic phenotype or, or picture of what PCOS might look like in one individual because it, it really can be all over the board. Uh, there was a statistic that I came across uh, while I was just doing a little bit of updating to see if that what else was out there, and, and that's that of 1,300 individuals with PCOS that were surveyed, uh, half of them saw three or more doctors before they were diagnosed, and a third of them, it took more than two years to meet the diagnosis or to get the diagnosis. So I think it's just it's very important to realize that there is not a maybe typical presentation, but one that is uh, varied and has multiple different factors associated with it. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up because with my patients, I'll often say to my patients, although it's called like PCO syndrome, really, I want you to think about it as PCO spectrum because hormones are not black and white. It's shades of gray. And so that's been a challenge for women with PCOS for a long time because you meet some criteria but not others or your hormones are moving and trending in one direction but not bad enough for a diagnosis. And ultimately, the same kinds of things help. But um, I'm really glad that you bring up that that classical type, I mean, that's one piece that we see, but I wouldn't say it's what we always see. In fact, I wouldn't even know if I could say that it's what I mostly see when it comes to PCOS anymore. Uh, One thing to add is that very recently, within the last week or two, um, AMH being elevated was added as another diagnostic marker that's acceptable. So that's another one that we can kind of add or if listeners are in that kind of fuzzy space, AMH would be another screener. This is just a blood test. It's anti-Mullerian hormone. It's interesting to me because I run it all the time because I have a fertility practice and it's a marker for, you know, ovarian reserve. But what happens in women with PCOS is because they end up with so many follicles that don't reabsorb, they still produce AMH and it's measurable. And I see this a lot of times I'll diagnose it in women who are like kind of asymptomatic or fuzzy symptomatic. They haven't been diagnosed yet, but the AMH, normally we aim for it to be about four and it'll be like 16. It'll be very high. And you're like, okay, you're definitely, you got more follicles hanging around there. Um, So anyway, I'm really glad that you bring that up. Now, I want to like lift up the hood and like kind of double click on that diagnosis and those criteria again, because I'd love for you to explain a little bit about, you know, how does conventional medicine view PCOS and how do naturopathic physicians and other integrative healthcare providers look at PCOS a little bit differently when you kind of get under the hood of what's going on? Yeah, it's a really good question. And Really, PCOS is a a endocrine disorder. It impacts multiple endocrine systems in the body and uh, and uh, different organ systems of the endocrine system. So it it's something that I feel like is conventionally, you know, there, there's these check boxes to kind of mark for the diagnosis. But the reality is, there are a lot of patients who are not that classic diagnosis or, or what you kind of um, mentioned, have like a fuzzy kind of presentation to them. And it's something where 
I feel like a lot of NDs, uh, naturopathic doctors really excel is that kind of fuzzy, you know, place to be where, um, the, like I had said, there, there are such a high number of uh, people out there who are not diagnosed for, for a long period of time or take multiple doctor's visits or, or seeing specialists to get to that diagnosis. And that's because in, in conventional medicine, a lot of times there are just these boxes to be checked. And, and for PCOS, it's not necessarily a, a situation where you have to just check the boxes to get there. It really is a lot of nuance and a lot of different uh, types of presentations that we can see. Sometimes the comorbidities speak louder um, and look more like a PCOS picture than the actual diagnostic criteria are. Uh, meaning that we might see somebody who is having challenges with getting pregnant or, uh, you know, might be experiencing uh, dark hair growth on their chin or um, worsen cystic acne and, and that being more of their symptom presentation, which those are not the diagnostic criteria, right? So it's it's really a scenario of, of not judging a book by its cover. You have to really take into perspective the whole patient. And I really feel like that's where naturopathic doctors excel. We, we have a lot more time generally to spend with our patients. We cultivate a lot, uh, I think for that reason, a lot deeper relationships, really listening, really understanding uh, what's going on and, and being able to put that whole picture together. So you see, you're right. You see patients come in that have, you know, they don't come in saying like, oh, I, you know, I can feel cysts on my ovaries. They come in with whatever problem it's presenting. I think the other ones I'd add to the mix that I see a lot for patients are like difficulty losing weight or feeling like they're doing everything right, but things aren't budging. Um, you know, and also just when you get weird markers on labs, like you're showing like high triglycerides or high cholesterol and you're like, I'm doing everything right. Why is this happening? That ends up leading you down the road or not getting your period, right? That's like a big one. And I know anovulation is part of the diagnostic criteria, but women don't always know what they're dealing with when they come in. And when you start to kind of uncover it. You're right. Like NDs are great at looking at that whole picture. Thankfully, that's why we catch a lot of PCOS. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I think another thing that I find so interesting with PCOS in particular is that, like you mentioned, it's like a multiple organ system endocrine disorder. You know, you have like pancreatic changes, which the pancreas is in charge of insulin and blood sugar, and we do see dysregulation there, kind of metabolic changes. You've got the ovaries, of course, part of the name. But I think the ovaries are really more the victim than the perpetrator with PCOS. That's kind of how I describe it. And then you've also got the adrenal glands, um, which we talk a lot about at Dutch too, you know, partly because with adrenals, they produce DHEA, which can be converted into testosterone and it's androgenic and that can be one source. And then you also can have like testosterone that's not being well converted to estrogen in the ovary. So you can kind of have multiple organs that can kind of be running the show. And I find that's different for different patients. Do you see the same thing where you might have more of an issue with one area or another? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, the, the degree or the severity of symptoms for, for patients varies wildly. Uh, in terms of what we can see for PCOS among all of the different uh, comorbidities and features that that come up. So how do you start to differentiate that? Like as you're building a treatment plan for women, for patients with PCOS, are there things that are generally good across the board for everyone? Maybe lifestyle pieces or things that you'd always consider? And then how do you kind of get 
more individualized or more personalized in your approach. Yeah, you know, I I think that um, it's it's really important to ask the question: What is most problematic? What is uh, impacting quality of life for the patient? Because when it comes to PCOS, there there's so many different factors that can impact an individual person, and some of them. Uh, we may classically be more concerned with from a medical standpoint, whereas patients might be concerned with different things Mm. uh, that could be impacting their quality of life. And so I think really listening to what a patient is experiencing is really the first step because we don't want to get pigeonholed in what we think as doctors is most important, whereas a patient might feel very differently um, or might view something else that that is much more important. And one good... uh, one good example of that is the hirsutism that can come up with PCOS. So the increased uh, hair growth, usually that's darker, more coarse under the chin, mustache, sometimes the the abdomen or around the nipples. And that can be really concerning for a lot of patients. Um, and so and from a medical standpoint, yes, it, it is an indicator of, of elevated androgens, testosterone, but uh, it's not really the factor that we tend to focus on that much for patients. We usually are a little bit more concerned about uh, the anovulatory cycles or the pain with uh, uh, cysts forming on the ovaries. Uh, not to say that the testosterone is important, but the hirsutism is often irreversible for a lot of patients. Um, and so I think step one is is really listening, understanding what is concerning to the patient. And then from there, putting together a picture of, you know, what what brand or flavor, if you will, of PCOS does somebody have? What features are they experiencing? Do they have more of the insulin resistance that is contributing to a more difficult time in losing weight? Um, do they have uh, sleep apnea in association with their their PCOS? Do they have fatty liver disease? So really understanding, you know, not only what's uh, what's impacting quality of life for a patient, but what could impact quality of life later down the road and what could really, you know, harm somebody's overall health uh, in the future. I find that a lot of uh, lab tests are helpful for this. Um, Sometimes some imaging like a liver ultrasound to determine fatty liver disease. Um, But really a a good place to start is, is lab testing. Um, and it's not a it's not a one size fit all from a from a conventional standpoint. Testosterone is the you know the the star of the show. Though though some endocrinologists and other providers will use additional testing, but um, that only really tells us about one avenue, one component of PCOS. It doesn't tell us about the other pieces. So you know, getting a really good overview of of each uh, section, if you will, each um, factor of PCOS, I, I find is is helpful. And for me, that usually means uh, lab testing. Totally. That's so cool. And just two things on that. One, on the lab testing side, we published um, at a poster at NAMS, North American Menopause. Oh, maybe that one was at, actually, that was at um, ASRM, the Reproductive Medicine Org, that actually showed that not just androgens and serum, but certain androgen metabolites actually were much more predictive of PCOS diagnosis in females. So that was kind of an interesting thing to see as we talk about lab testing. It'll be fun to develop that into a full manuscript and share that out because I think for those patients that are in that in-between zone, you know, this is through us with Dutch testing, we measure urine metabolites of androgens and we observe very distinct, statistically significantly distinct patterns in patients with PCOS that can be picked up on maybe in cases where serum isn't so clear. Mm-hmm. And you do you do have to be very careful about what testing you're using as well. And 
um, you know, not a lot of, uh, I would say, general primary care doctors might be aware of that. There are different sensitivities of the tests and, and of the uh, serum hormones that can be picked up. For example, a serum testosterone-free testosterone might not be very accurate depending on what lab you're utilizing. So not only is it important to get a good picture using different lab tests, but also making sure that you're using the ones that are appropriate for, you know, that type of test and, and what is most accurate. Yeah, it's great for you to bring that up. And we see that in serum tests all the time with hormones because hormones are a super low level in the blood. So they're challenging to measure. I've learned a lot about this since like getting behind the scenes in the lab that we're measuring urine and that can be pretty low as well. But you're right, like even within LabCorp and Quest, like your standard lab tests, when you measure estrogen, a doctor has two choices to measure estrogen. One is like an immunoassay and the other one is mass spec. And one of them is like $30 out of pocket and the other one's like $75 out of pocket. But the data on the accuracy for mass spec, the more expensive one, of course, is so much better. In fact, we educate people all the time now on investing on that for the patient because the immunoassay um, result is not super accurate. And if you're making clinical decisions based upon that result, that could be problematic. So I'm glad that you bring that up. Now, the other thing I want to circle back to, which just, I think just speaks to me as someone who cares about patients getting good care. And I can tell that you're one, you educate a lot of doctors and two, you're likely a fabulous doctor. In fact, I think I want to become your patient is the fact that you mentioned you have to talk about what patients, what's important to your patient. And I feel like that gets overlooked so much. But with PCOS, you're right. There's a lot of concerning symptoms. And if you're a clinician, whether you're a health coach or a naturopathic doctor or whatever, and your patient comes in and you're like, I'm really concerned because you've got fatty liver and we really need to get on this. But they're like, but I have a date on Wednesday and I've got super bad acne flare up right now. If you don't treat the acne, which is what they really care about, they're never going to come back to you. You're never going to treat the liver. They're going to go somewhere else to find someone who's going to address their more urgent needs. So, you know, you mentioned this in your bio about relationship building, and I'd love to dive into that a little bit more because I think that that's an entry point, kind of addressing patients' immediate needs. How do you handle that when you're trying to juggle all that as a clinician of like, there's preventive medicine that needs to be done. There's maybe active concerns that are not as red flaggy to a patient. And then there's those immediate ones, the hirsutism, the acne, the weight, um, with patients with PCOS, how do you kind of keep that in balance and keep your patient moving forward? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Maybe even the million dollar question. <laughs> um, you know, I I think it's really understanding what is most important to a patient and combining that with good education and teaching about you know, well, okay, let's address that. Let's let's put together a plan that can address that. But let's also make sure that we are addressing your longevity and and protecting your quality of life and your overall health, you know, not not just a year from now, but but 10 years from now, because with PCOS, we're talking about a lot of uh, comorbidities that could be very detrimental to somebody, you know, many years from now, including cardiovascular disease and, and risk. So, I, you know, it's it's a bit of a give and take. It's it's addressing mm. what is most important now, and and then education on what else needs to be addressed for the future. And and most patients, when you talk to them about, you know, what they want for their future, what is most important to them about their future, 
um, quality of life, happiness, being there for their family. Th those are all the things that are at the top of the list. And so it's a lot easier to get to get somebody to, to buy in, if you will, to their treatment plan, uh, to care about that longevity as much as you do as their doctor when you when you bring it down to that level, when you have that conversation with them about what, what that really means in the future. That's great. Yeah, you got to get them to tap into their, their why, right? You know, to do those kind of long-term things. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I'd love for you to share a little bit. Let's start maybe with some lifestyle recommendations that you pretty consistently make for patients with PCOS. I am so, so happy that this is part of this conversation because it is a, a little bit of a soapbox for me. And I'll try not to get and try not to stand on it too high here, but no, that's what this is for. Get on, climb aboard. Let's do it. <laughs> um, you know, the the conventional and, and the current uh, standard of care recommendation for individuals with PCOS is weight loss to help manage their PCOS. And I find that to be very short-sighted and, and very, you know, very detrimental to a number of patients because the form at which it is recommended for weight loss, and, and this is even uh, what is included in UpToDate for, for those who might not know, that's the, the website, the database that all doctors go to to get the latest and greatest recommendations for treatment of any uh, health condition. The, their recommendation for weight loss is uh, redu reduce calorie intake and exercise. But all of her research, all that's of like her if you research, can't see me, that's like a hand slap. If you are just audio only, let's do it together, Dr. Richardson. It's like a massive hand slap. No, you just need to like, oh man, bang your head against the wall moment. Um, because all all of our research shows that a restricted diet and intense weight loss or exercise regimen does not result in lasting weight loss. Um, and to take it one step further than that, uh, individuals with PCOS are at risk for uh, cardiovascular disease and, and cardiovascular events. So what is a faster way to a cardiovascular event, to, to what's a faster or even greater increase in cardiovascular uh, risk is yo-yo dieting. So now we've got a subset of individuals, those who have PCOS, who are going to have a harder time losing weight regardless because they have insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is what, you know, often contributes to more weight gain around the middle that is really hard to lose even with a uh, healthy diet, restricted diet, or increased exercise regimen. So we've got individuals that, are, that already have the, the deck stacked against them, if you will, and have told them to lose weight when we know that 99% of those who uh, restrict their calories to lose weight or have, do uh, maintain a very uh, intense exercise regimen that they will gain that weight back and usually then some within a year of that diet. So, oh man, this is such a, a rough place to be. And, mm -hmm. and we also know the detriment that recommending weight loss uh, can be to somebody's mental health. Now, one of the things we haven't mentioned thus far is that uh, individuals with PCOS are at a greater risk for the development of anxiety and depression. So now we've got kind of a, a deck stacked against us with recommendations for weight loss uh, for those that might even more severely uh, be impacted by the, you know, by the the mental toll that giving that recommendation can have on somebody. So, yeah. We're, Do we're you know about, then, sorry, oh, uh, what about eating disorders? Do you know if there's any data on eating disorder prevalence? I, I've never looked into well, that, but. 
Well, I, I'm not sure around PCOS specifically, but we do know that for anybody who is overweight or obese, um, that the the instances to which they have experienced an eating disorder or disordered eating is extremely high. Um, I believe one of the statistics that I, I last saw was like over 75%, over 80%. Mm. So I would say very, very high. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of comment on what you're saying, like it's, we absolutely agree. Weight is not a calorie in calorie out math equation. If it was that simple, we'd have it figured out by now, you know, but it's obviously really not, especially when there is metabolic dysfunction, inflammation at a macro and a cellular level, you know, insulin resistance, other hormone imbalances, HPA axis dysfunction. There's so much that goes into it. And then you also add the impact of food. Like food and nutrients are not just calories. They're information. There's nutrient density. There's macronutrients, you know, how much fiber, how much protein, how much fat. All those things contribute to satiety. So if you have tried the calorie model and done, you know, food restriction, you know, like you can't live on willpower. It just doesn't work. It, you revert back. You have to work with a provider like Dr. Richardson or other integrated providers who know how to provide support in a way that really makes sense, helps you feel full, shifts your nutrient density. It's so important. So let's talk about this a little bit more. So obviously I'm assuming that you do not recommend straight, flat, caloric restrictions. So what do you recommend nutritionally for your patients? Very great question. So um, there's kind of two things that I always uh, start with or at least focus on. One is fiber. Increase your fiber in any way that you can. Uh, we know that that is very helpful from a, a cholesterol standpoint, very helpful from a blood sugar standpoint. It helps us feel full longer. It's extremely important for the health of our, uh, of our intestinal cells, so fiber. Focus on fiber. And then the second one is work on getting the nutrients in that your body needs. All of our cofactors, all of our, you know, vitamins and, you know, everything that our body needs to do what our bodies need to do comes from our fruits and vegetables. So if at the end of the day you are, you know, eating one serving of fruit and vegetables a day, well, let's work on increasing that to two and let's work on finding a route that makes that easy and and doable over the long term because we really want to plan for changes that are maintainable not for not for a few months not for a year but for 5 years or 10 years and we want to be able to build up on those so starting very small very minimal changes where we can just continue to build and to add because those tiny little baby steps add up to very large steps after a, a even a short period of time so those are my usual two go-tos. That's awesome. Now, what about exercise? Is there like a certain type or quantity of exercise you think is good? Just move your body. I don't recommend any particular type um, or quantity, uh, although the standard, you know, uh, guidelines for, for cardiovascular health is 150 minutes of moderate exercise in a week. So two and a half hours, moderate being anything get, that gets your heart rate up and makes you feel short of breath. So I think, you know, step one is, well, let's identify anything right now in somebody's day that maybe is a good amount of uh, like walking, but maybe not of uh, an intense enough uh, or enough intensity to meet that. So if you're already walking back and forth from the bus stop or, you know, um, what have you, wherever you are, if you're already walking that, well, let's just get the intensity up so it's a moderate degree. 
And if you're not already doing anything, well, what about at lunchtime, you know, walk around the block once or twice, depending on, on what's, what's doable to you. So again, baby steps that we can build on. And before long, most people realize that even though it sounds like a lot, two and a half hours a, a week, it really isn't if you can fit it in in there, you know, in between things and make it a habit. And it doesn't need to be, you know, going all out. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, the, the greatest intensity. It just needs to make you feel a little short of breath and get your heart rate up. That's great. Yeah. One of my favorite things to recommend is we, it's called LIST, Low Intensity Steady State. And this is like walking, cycling, really simple things that actually are not massive exertion. And, you know, for me doing 30 minutes a day of walking has like literally changed my life. It's changed my health. It's changed my motivation throughout the day. And it's so easy to do. If you have a pet, you can like make it your dog walk. But if you don't, just getting out to move, like you said, is so important. And one other thing I would add is that if you are struggling with that blood sugar regulation or insulin resistance or your labs, like you have elevated hemoglobin A1C or your fasting blood sugar is a little high, you know, another great thing to do is do your walk right after a meal. Actually, you know, like you said, two walks around the block, maybe you split your walking into two 15-minute intervals after breakfast, lunch, or dinner and do that with your partner. We've started doing that with our kids and our family. And that actually, I don't know the remember the data, but it has a significant blunting effect on your blood sugar spike after eating a meal. So that's another thing, especially like if you do pasta night or something like that, where you might get a bit more of a glucose spike, more carbohydrates. That's a great thing to do is get that exercise timed with your meal because it can be really, really impactful. I love that. Yeah. It's a great recommendation. So now we've talked about diet. We've talked about lifestyle. Another big part of our treatment plan is supplement recommendations. And just a caveat, you know, these are all personalized by your integrative healthcare provider. But Dr. Richardson, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about some of your favorites that you maybe use frequently in your practice for women with PCOS. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you you brought that up. There's a there's a few. I would say one of them that I use very commonly uh, is myo-inositol, uh, helpful for uh, both anovulatory cycles or helping with ovulation, uh, as well as the insulin resistance that we can see with individuals with PCOS. Um, in terms of other herbs, I commonly use uh, usually combination products that have like saw palmetto and and things like that to help with the elevated androgens. Uh, chamomile, green tea, um, spearmint, those all can be helpful as well. I do use some berberine at times to help with uh, the insulin resistance or more usually more so if my patients have crossed over into their into like the pre-diabetes mm-hmm. stage. I will, mm-hmm. I will add that one on. Um, Vitex is a great one to help with uh, balancing hormones. Um, anything that helps to Support progesterone, particularly in the luteal phase, can be really helpful. So evening primrose oil is a is a common go to for me. Um, and, and and my gosh, there's so many more, but those are the ones that <laughs> that come to mind right away. Yeah, I I mean I completely agree. There's so many great herbs out there, and myo-inositol, I use that so much in my practice for women who aren't having regular cycles. And um, there's even been head-to-head studies against metformin, which is the biggest drug prescribed for PCOS, and the myo-inositol outperforms metformin in restoring ovulation. So if anyone ever tells you that natural medicine doesn't work or nutrition doesn't work, you can point to that study. (laughs) That's a really great one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you know, how can people find out more about you and your practice if they want to work with you? You're in the Seattle area. Um, So share a little bit more about yourself. 
Yeah, um, we do have a website, nfmseattle.com, that, that anybody is welcome to go check out. Um, we have two different locations, one in Fremont called Naturopathic Family Medicine and one in West Seattle called West Seattle Natural Medicine. Um, and yeah, anybody is, is welcome to make an appointment um, or, or reach out. Um, let us know if, if there's any questions. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We've loved having you on and I really appreciate you spending your time sharing your expertise with all of us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. We are so glad you joined us today for this in-depth conversation. If you want to learn how Dutch testing can help you profoundly change your patients' lives, visit us at dutchtest.com providers. There, you can become a provider and gain access to exclusive hormone education, like our new Dutch interpretive guide and the Mastering Functional Hormones Testing Course, a self-paced online course designed to help you become a hormone expert. If you enjoy listening to the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word by commenting and sharing the show on your favorite streaming app. Also, stay connected with us by following at Dutch Test on Instagram and Facebook, where you'll find even more news, education, and provider resources. Thank you again for joining us today. Come back next week for more.